right, we are going to roll quickly into the next uh, the next part of the program. Without a break, there'll be a break after this, but I am very excited for the next part of the program uh, because we have our keynote for today uh, from Judge Laval, who is here. Yes, great. <laughs> um, Judge Laval probably needs no introduction in this room or many of the rooms actually he speaks in, but it is, is my opportunity to give it anyway. Uh, judge Laval is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Uh, prior to that, he was a district court judge in the Southern District of New York. And probably one of, the, one of the main reasons he is here is because he is the author of the highly influential, I think it's hard to underestimate the influence, towards a fair use standard article that argued about the importance of transformativeness in fair use. He also was the, was the author of the landmark Authors Guild versus Google, Google Books opinion. Um, closer to, to home for NYU, he is, he has been adjunct faculty here at NYU and is a member of the Engelberg Center Advisory Board. His keynote today is titled, Fair Use, A Ramble Through the Bramble. And so please join me in welcoming Judge Laval. It's a huge honor to have been invited to join the extraordinary advisory board of the Engelberg Center, and all the more so to be invited to talk to you at this symposium. It's also something of an emotional booster to be back in this room, uh, because this is the room where uh, 30 years ago I gave the, the Brace Lecture, which became a, a law review article on fair use standards. Uh, when I was a young judge in the district court, some 30, 40 years ago, having come to the bench like most judges without even the tiny experience or knowledge uh, of copyright, the, the random spin of the wheel of case assignments in the clerk's office sent me a statistically <coughs> unbelievable succession of fascinating fair use cases. J.D. Salinger, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, Igor Stravinsky, uh, photocopying by Texaco geologists for scientific research. I, I groped for explanations of the doctrine and understanding of it. My first two rulings were dismissively rejected by the Court of Appeals, and I consoled myself that it was uh, exhilarating to be at the cutting edge of the law, even in the role of the salami. <laughs> I will talk today about a few areas of fair use inquiry where I think the precedential body of law uh, could use some sharpening of focus. I begin with the statute itself, section 107, its very existence and significance. The most important lesson, I think, with respect to section 107 is that we shouldn't read too much into it. Uh, I'm not suspect, su suggesting any disrespect for Congress. I'm not saying that judges should substitute their judgment for Congress's judgment. My intention is rather to fulfill the intention of Congress. Congress made clear in the report um, that it did not intend to dictate law or policy, but simply, but simply rather 
to see to it that such an important judge-made doctrine uh, should uh, be reflected in the statute itself uh, where anyone can find it. Um, so Congress, in, in the specifics of the words, was not dictating law or policy, but was rather making a deferential attempt to summarize a common law doctrine adhering closely to Justice Story's 1841 economical description in Folsom v. Marsh. It leaves the future development of the common law to the common law engine that created it. Uh, judges often look at the statute and scratch their heads and say to themselves, what did Congress want me to do with this case? And the answer for them should be, uh, Congress wanted you to continue the judicial common law development of the doctrine as if Section 107 had simply never been passed. Now, the statute lists four factors to be considered in the analysis. And it's generally recognized that the first and the fourth are the most important. Uh, the third is merely an aid to the application of both the, both the first and the fourth. And about the second, I will say a few more words uh, later. I, I begin now with the first, uh, which is perhaps the most challenging and perhaps the least well understood. Its wording is significantly unhelpful. Um, it's it, building on Justice Story's also obscure reference to the, the objects of the selections made. The statute says to look at the purpose and character of the copying work, but it gives no clue uh, what sorts of purpose or character are favored. And I think our understanding of the, of the law and of the role of the first factor could be improved by greater attention to a word that reoccurs in some key precedential markers. And the word I have in mind is justification. Um, the first factor essentially asks, given the objectives of copyright, is there arguable justification for this copying of the plaintiff's work? Justice Story summarized by saying, the question is then whether this is a justifiable use of the original materials, such as the law recognizes as no infringement of the copyright. The word also received significant play when the Supreme Court undertook in Campbell uh, to lay out the gist of fair use analysis. With reference to hypothetical act of copying of, uh, that claims fair use, while offering no commentary or illumination of any sort about the original, but instead simply helps to communicate the secondary author's independent message on some other subject, uh, Campbell raised a question of the justification for the very act of borrowing. Uh, I suggest it would be helpful to court's understanding of factor one's reference to purpose or character of the use as essentially asking the question, Given the purposes of copyright, is this the sort of copying that has arguable justification? Now, what do we mean by justification? What sort of justification? Justification in relation to the overriding justification of copyright itself, which is public edification. Uh, what value does the copying bring to edification? Uh, of course, not including the value that is inherent uh, in the original. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting that the copying necessarily needs to be publicly distributed. Uh, I think it can serve the benefit of edification 
if it edifies the person who makes the copy, such as, for example, by, uh, by digitizing, making a digitized copy of a document for the purpose of discovering uh, uh, how many words per sentence it has or, or, or any other of the sort of research functions that can be found by making such a copy. I think such justification should be regarded, regarded as a minimum threshold requirement, an entry ticket. I think factor use, that factor ones, factor one should be seen uh, as, a, as a, an essential element of fair use. This essential element, of course, can be defeated by harm uh, to the copyright under the fourth factor. Uh, but without a justifiable copying objective that can satisfy factor one, um, uh, the court will not have adequate reason to find fair use, even in the absence of fourth factor harm. Of course, if there's neither justification for the copying nor fourth factor harm, the copying might conceivably escape liability under the de minimis doctrine, but that's a completely different proposition. It's not fair use. The Supreme Court suggested in Campbell that transformative uses favor a finding of fair use. Why transformative? Because of the likelihood because of the likelihood of substitution and the difficulty of finding justification where the copying is done for the same communicative purpose as intended by the original. The word transformative is important and helpful, but it's at best an imprecise directional indicator for a subtle and complex inquiry where prior to Campbell, the body of our precedent furnished little guidance as to what purpose or character uh, was favored. Prior to Campbell, courts largely ruled instinctively from the gut without expressing any guiding standards at all. Uh, the word transformative does not purport to give clear boundaries. In the Campbell passage that I mentioned a moment ago that invoked justification, the Supreme Court gave further guidance on the circumstances where copying should be deemed transformative so as to pass this justification threshold. I think that guidance uh, has been underappreciated. Speaking of the difference between parody and satire, Campbell explained roughly as follows. Parody quotes from the original in a mocking or, or critical way uh, for the purpose of making a commentary on the original. Parody requires quotation to make critical points about the original. The commentary about the original is the justification for quoting it. In contrast, what Justice Souter referred to as satire is taking from the original to make the copier's independent point, which is not about the original. Such an appropriation piggybacks on the fame or the felicitous expression of the original to give punch or humor, style, or persuasiveness to the, to the taker's message. The Supreme Court doubted the justification for such appropriation. The Campbell Court put those observations in terms of parody versus satire because in that case, the defendant was claiming the well-established protective mantle of parody as a fair use. But the importance of the observations goes far beyond the difference between parody and satire. It addresses a common form of copying that is neither parodic nor satirical, where one simply piggybacks 
on a famous song or poem, passage or logo, playing on public recognition of the original to give punch or humor to a new unrelated message. Where the copying is essentially either to harness the expressive brilliance of the original for the delivery of the copier's message, or to gain audience impact for the new message by free riding on the fame uh, of the original expression, courts should ponder whether such changes can qualify as transformative, whether they have arguable justification for copying. It's difficult to see why the original author should not be entitled to a fee for licensing such a, a utilization of her work. My next port of call is factor two, the nature of the original. Uh, I believe this factor has not been correctly understood. I believe the case law has at times given it a misleading meaning and at times has simply failed to recognize the proper role it regularly plays uh, in a fair use exploration. A number of courts groping for a way to find significance in the underappreciated second factor have treated Justice O'Connor's commentary in The Nation on the importance of factual works as supporting a conclusion that if the original work is factual, that is a factor supporting a conclusion of fair use, whereas the fictional, artistic, or fantasy nature of the original would be a factor disfavoring fair use. First of all, the nation opinion didn't say that. And furthermore, the proposition simply makes no sense. Whether the use made by the copier is fair use does not depend at all on whether the original was a work of fact or fantasy. It depends on the character and purpose of the use made, the justification for copying, in combination with the potential for harm uh, uh, to the value of the original that results from substitution. If one copies a factual works expression without transformative justification, that should be an infringement, just as when one copies the expression of a fictional work without transformative justification. Consider, for example, suppose that physics professor B uh, copies professor A's treatise on physics, where B has copied A's expression for the purpose of explaining the laws of physics to students. Factual? Yes. Transformative? No. The purpose of B's copying was the same as the purpose of A's original. Is it justifiable? No. B's copy offers a substitute for A's treatise. In Story's words, it supersedes. By the same token, copying from a fictional work or an artistic work, if done for the purpose of analyzing its artistic successes or failures should qualify to win factor one as a transformative justification. Whether the original work was fact or fantasy is a useless distraction from what matters and it should have no role in answering whether the copy is a fair use. Now, notwithstanding attribution of some erroneous significance to the second factor, most court decisions have found that the second factor contributed nothing of significance to their decisions. The heavy emphasis given by courts to factor one, coupled with the very small significance given by courts to factor two, 
has led some observers to complain that courts, were dis that courts uh, are dissing the statute and substituting their judgment for the judgment of Congress. I believe that is incorrect and that courts are, and, and it is incorrect that courts are giving no importance to factor two, even when they say they are giving no importance to factor two. I believe this is simply a matter of confusion as to the proper box in which to place certain observations. Since the Campbell decision, virtually every single court decision on a claim of fair use has considered whether the defendant's use of the original is transformative. That inquiry is inherently comparative. While courts place this issue in their discussion of factor one, uh, consideration of whether the copying is transformative inevitably involves a comparison of the nature and purpose of the original with the nature, character, and purpose of the copying work. Consideration of transformativeness necessarily gives attention to the nature and communicative purposes of the original by comparing it to the character and purpose of the copying work. Courts have neither ignored nor undervalued the statute's instruction to consider and weigh the nature of the original. They have merely failed to recognize that they were doing what factor two requires as well as what factor one requires when they've considered transformativeness. I come now to what is surely the most important thing that I have to say uh, to the most dangerous and distorting trend, in my view, in fair use analysis, a misconception that can cause seriously erroneous results as well as imposing needless, onerous burdens on everyone. I refer to the Supreme Court's ill-conceived proposition in the nation that fair use presupposes good faith and fair dealing. This idea emerged in part from a historically inaccurate perception that fair use is an equitable rule of reason, which I think when uttered by courts was intended to mean only that the standards of fair use were vague. Courts may have always also been misled by the, by the presence in the, in, in, the, in the title of the word fair, which has an apparent association with the notion of fair and equitable conduct. But today's name, fair use, emerged from an earlier form, fair abridgment, which more clearly referred to the appropriateness of the manner of abridgment. That is, it should show invention and should not supersede, uh, otherwise put, not substitute. Uh, for the original. Um, Bill Patry's exhaustive <clears throat> and impressive treatise on fair use explains furthermore that <clears throat> as copyright plaintiffs' demands for damages were heard in the law courts and their demands for injunctions were heard in equity, the litigation of a particular dispute went back and forth, proceedings in the law courts, proceeding in the equity courts, uh, the defense now known as fair use was as much a defense in a suit for damages as for an injunction. And when a plaintiff sought only damages, the equity court had no participation whatsoever. Fair use was no more, according to uh, the history that I have looked at, no more a, a defense in equity than it was a defense in law. Uh, nor do the foundational documents support a requirement of good faith. 
Justice Story did not acknowledge such a requirement, uh, although observing that good faith is not a bar to liability. Good faith is, of course, not even mentioned in Section 107's enumeration of relevant factors. More importantly, the proposition simply misconceives and disserves uh, not only the nature of the fair use defense, but also the very nature and justification of copyright itself. Copyright is a property right. It entitles the owner to bar others from certain types of copying of the work. Why and to what end? Because incentivizing authors to create and publish serves the overriding goal of public enlightenment. Fair use serves public enlightenment. This, ex this exclusive property right of authors is not an absolute right. It has definitional boundaries, and the justification for those boundaries does not change regardless of whether the copier acted inequitably. The right ends, <laughs> the right ends where its exercise would harm rather than advance copyright's overall goal of enlightenment. For this reason, the copyright has three major confining boundaries. The copyright in the work does not bar others from copying facts. It does not bar others from copying ideas. And it doesn't bar copying that satisfies the more complex definition of fair use. All three boundaries derive from copyright's overriding objective to serve what our 18th century constitution described as the progress of science. The collective wisdom of the common law determined over time that it would be seriously detrimental to the progress of science to allow owners of copyrights to assert exclusive control over the copying of facts, the copying of ideas, and copying that serves fair uses. In the words of Lord Ellenborough, one must not put manacles on science. When a work of authorship is quoted to communicate a fact or idea or a fair use, the author of the original has not lost any part of her copyright entitlement. She never owned a right to bar such a copying. I think Pam Samuelson made something like the same point earlier in speaking of Lydia Lauren's uh, article uh, saying that, that copyright doesn't cover fair use. In the words of section 107, a fair use is not an infringement of the copyright. No one would seriously contend that the entitlement for public to, of the public edification to publish facts and ideas taken from a copyrighted text should depend on whether the copier acted in good faith. There's no reason why the issue should be viewed any different when the original author seeks to suppress the publication of a fair use. For all these questions, whether the copier observed fair dealing is completely irrelevant to the public interest in the dissemination of knowledge. <clears throat> the harm and loss that this doctrine from, from the nation causes can be very great. Now consider the case of a journalist who discovers and exposes that the writings of a prominent public figure, uh, perhaps a holder of high public office or a religious leader, exhibits lies, distortions, cruelties, bigotries. 
To gain access to revelatory documents, journalists and commentators frequently must conceal their intention to criticize. They pose as a Boswell on a mission to sing praises of Dr. Johnson. Are the objectives of copyright served by allowing the author of the lies and bigotries to prevent the principal intended benefit, beneficiary of copyright, the public, from learning of the lies on the ground that the agent of their disclosure concealed his purpose? A few examples, I mean, an example I think of is uh, Michael Wolff's recent book about the White House. Should it have been subject to injunction because he pretended his writing would be, would be idolatrous? A quoter who is deceived about his intentions to criticize may, of course, be conceivably liable for various torts, perhaps for fraud, perhaps for conversion, trespass, but that does not justify depriving the public of the educational benefit of access to revelatory quotation that passes the legitimate fair use criteria. In short, it's easy to be against bad faith, but the law governing copyright in this regard should not differ from, the, from other forms of property laws, such as real and personal property. Consider, for example, uh, suppose a defendant charged with trespass, and they acted in bad faith, secretly fishing in a neighboring stream, when both the plaintiff and the defendant believed that that stream was owned by the plaintiff. The defendant's bad faith in fishing there doesn't render him a trespasser when it turns out that the plaintiff didn't own the stream at all. Because the copier who brings fair use to the public does not impinge on any right of the original author, the copier's good or bad faith should be completely irrelevant. Now, it's not just that imposition of good faith, of a good faith requirement undermines the principal justifying objectives of copyright and causes bad results and imports undesirable unpredictability. It's worse than that. The introduction of this irrelevancy also inflicts unjustifiable burdens on all persons concerned. If good faith is a prerequisite to fair use, everybody turns out to be the loser. Why is this so? Well, while there are without question some difficult cases, perhaps many difficult cases, in most instances, it's not really very difficult to make a judgment, an informed judgment, whether copying should qualify as a fair use, simply from comparing the two documents. When a publisher considers publishing a biographical manuscript presented, which includes quoting from the subject's writings, the putative publisher will usually be able, in consultation with the attorney, to make a confident prediction whether the quoting qualifies for the protection for the protection as fair use simply by comparing the two texts. On the other hand, if good faith is a prerequisite to fair use, the publisher is going to be at sea without a chart or a compass. She can ask her, 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 her quoting author, did you or anyone you depended on deceive anyone, conceal investigative intentions, abuse anyone's trust? use any dirty tricks to get access to your materials? Is this a vengeance for a grudge? Are you cheating in some way? But assuming that the author insists on irreproachable probity, what does the publisher do next? Hire detective, detectives to investigate the author's conduct 
All of this introduces needless mistrust, expense, delay, and risk, and it will often cause publishers to decline to take the risk of publishing a valuable work, lest it turned out that the secondary author deceptively sweet-talked some gatekeeper into giving access to the materials. The same problem, exactly the same problem, burdens the courts and the parties in litigation. If the law of fair use is properly understood, the court can rule relatively cheaply and expeditiously on a fair use defense. It can often be resolved at least on a motion for summary judgment, but very frequently as well even on a motion to dismiss under 12b-6 on the basis of the complaint by simply comparing the two documents. But if good faith is a prerequisite, wasteful, expensive discovery will be required, jury trials with huge attendant expense and years of delay will be required for cases that could have been resolved in a few weeks on a motion to dismiss. In a low profit industry, publishers will be increasingly unwilling to incur the expense of publishing books that quote, and everyone will be the loser. So I recognize that it's difficult to eliminate from the law a proposition that the Supreme Court has endorsed, but the Supreme Court reconsidered the nation's dictum 10 years later in Campbell. Now, given that the justice who wrote the nation and three others who joined remained on the court, the Campbell Court went about as far as it could go to repudiate the proposition without risking to alienate those votes. The text of the Campbell opinion lays out a blueprint of how courts should analyze fair use. Nowhere in that blueprint, blueprint does it mention bad faith. If the Campbell Court believed, as was stated in the nation, that fair use presupposes good faith and fair dealing, uh, surely that would have been included in this blueprint analysis of how to appraise a fair use defense. Instead, in footnote 18, the Campbell Court characterized the pertinence of good faith as an open question because of disagreement between what the Supreme Court said and a law review article. Really? <laughs> Criticism of a Supreme Court decision in a law review article is usually not viewed as leaving an open question. It appears that the Campbell Court was tactfully backing away from its prior utterance. The footnote, the footnote goes on to say that the, that the result of the Campbell case would not change, and I quote, even if good faith were central to the fair use analysis. The use of the subjunctive in the phrase, even if it were, is very telling. The subjunctive is used to designate a condition that is contrary to the fact. Uh, as I remember learning on the first day of law school, I think, it's not an assault to say, were it not a sizes time, I would give thee a thrashing. The inference is strongly suggested by the Campbell discussion that the court deemed the nation dictum a mistake, but the requirements of tact prevented outright repudiation. So where does that leave us? I submit that the nation's assertion of the relevance of good faith to fair use is so harmful, so distorting, 
so contrary to the fundamental principles of copyright that every <coughs> scholar in the field should seize on every possible opportunity to try eventually to secure its eventual repudiation by the Supreme Court. I thank you. Thank you so much. Um, if, if you are willing, we'd love to open the floor to a couple of follow-up questions. As long as they're not hard questions. <laughs> they don't have easy questions they want to answer. <laughs> Please uh, come to the mics and uh, we'll, we'll just switch off. Good afternoon, Judge LeBond. Um I've been dealing with a lot of copyright cases from copyright trolls lately. From what? Copyright trolls. So there are hundreds and hundreds of cases that have been filed, I'm sure you're aware, um, seeking uh, large damages. It's basically become legal extortion, right? They go to court on cases that would otherwise not have come to court because they're too small, the damages are too tiny. What's been, what just happened in the Southern District was on a pre-motion letter seeking a motion on fair use. The judge responded, you don't need to make the request, and decided that they re he received a, a response from the, defendant, uh, from the plaintiff and decided right there on those paper, on those letters to say, yeah, the use was fair use, which was great as far as I was concerned because the, I didn't even consider in some of these cases using a fair use defense because the party did take a photograph that existed may not have had any uh, market for sale, but took that picture, put it on their own websites to depict the same thing that was being depicted in the original. It wasn't for commentary, it was just to, for a zillion different purposes, because there are a zillion different uh, defendants. The question I have is, is this something now that the courts might consider a little differently based upon the level of damage or the level of or the inherent value of the justification? Well, I, um, I'm not sure I understand all the implications of your question, but uh, I think part of it is I, I have always believed that, um, that a, a useful understanding of copyright requires that de minimis be a muscular doctrine. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable, I'm more than a little uncomfortable with um, using fair use as a kind of a garbage pail uh, to collect uh, all cases that seem like they, like they don't really have merit and are a nuisance. Copyright is a, copyright is a very problematic doctrine because of uh, transaction costs and, 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 and other sorts of difficulties. Um, there are the, 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 the business of, of trying to secure a, a license uh, can be uh, not only expensive, time-consuming, burdensome, um, it can be impossible just to even get the attention of the person who, who, uh, who, who, who's being asked for a license. So there are a lot of problems in copyright, um, <coughs> and, um, and it's a great temptation uh, to courts and everybody else, and, and has, a, has 
some value to treating it as a dumping ground, as kind of a, a collect-all excuse to get rid of, of crap. Uh, but um, right. <laughs> but I but I I fear that that doing that um, uh, risks to do serious damage to the understanding of the doctrine, and so I'm I'm kind of resistant. So in your talk, Judge Laval, you you propose a a new use for factor two. I just want to talk about where we what we would do with the old use. So in in a in an opinion by the late Judge Reinhardt in uh, um, Sega versus Accolade. Uh, Judge Reinhardt looks at um, the copying of some software to extract essentially user interfaces from the software to design competitive um, software. Um, and he says, well, under factor two, th the nature of this work is that there's factual elements kind of mixed up with expressive elements in software. And to extract those elements, those factual elements, you can't just read the software. You actually have to copy it and then decompile it. Um, so the nature of this work is such that to access the things that the law allows you to access, you have to copy. And so a wider latitude must be given for copying than would ordinarily be given. Um, so that's a use he makes of factor two. Um, are you meaning to exclude that use from factor two? If so, do you think it belongs somewhere else? Is there some other factor where that consideration is better housed? No, I, I didn't mean to exclude any, con well, I, 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 I meant to exclude one consideration. I meant to, I meant to exclude that the fact that the original is a fact work or the fact that it, the original is a fictional work isn't a factor that favors factor two. That's all I meant to exclude. Um, uh, I was simply suggesting that, um, I was simply suggesting that in the, in the, in the innumerable opinions including some of mine, in which courts have said, I look at factor two and I find nothing in it that, uh, that uh, uh, affects my judgment, uh, the courts were failing to recognize that in their discussion of factor one, they had necessarily considered factor two. Now, um, uh, of course, um, there is another aspect to factual works, which is that that facts are not protected by the copyright, and you have the merger doctrine in addition, so that in many cases, the copying of facts uh, is not going to be an infringement uh, because it's simply not an infringement uh, without need to go to, 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 uh, to fair use to reach that, that conclusion. Um, have, I, have I approached an answer? Yes. You regarded that as an easy question? <laughs> this one's going to be worse. So I have, I have two questions and one comment. Uh, so my first uh, question uh, is uh, uh, about uh, the good faith fair dealing um, uh, as a sub-factor. Um, and I very much agree with you that um, it's a good idea not to give too much emphasis to that. Um, I do wonder, though, whether um, indirectly by talking about justification, uh, that justification will lead to at least some parties to basically say, well, bad faith, um, therefore not justified. So um, I think one of, uh, one of the things about purpose and character of the use is that it's more objective. Um, uh, and so I think you may be right, and I'm going to be thinking about the justification as a way of thinking about that first factor, but uh, I can see ways in which good or bad faith could end up uh, 
sliding into this, uh, um, uh, and so I wondered your uh, comments about that. Um, and my second question uh, has to do let me, with. Let me deal with that okay. first. Let me, let me answer that. Okay. And then get to your second, because otherwise I'll forget the first when thinking about okay. the second. Um, uh, I think that's a, those are very pertinent remarks, but it, it involves an ambiguity in the word justification and also an ambiguity in the word purpose. Um, and, 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 and I think that those are, are, are things to be viewed objectively. I don't mean justification in the sense of that it is just, it is just that this should be done. I, I meant more justification in terms that it serves the objective of copyright, the, the, edif the, the objective of edification of copyright. Now, uh, a purpose has the same ambiguity and, and um, um, uh, authors can take the witness stand and say, well, my purpose in doing this was, and, and can devise, but, but those are not really what we mean. Uh, those kinds of things that might be jury questions. What we mean is is really what what the work communicates. What uh, and and um, um, if the um, if the if the copying work undertakes to show that the statement in the original was a lie, uh, it doesn't matter what the you know whether the whether the the the, the emotional purpose of the copier was to get vengeance against the original or to do harm or to serve a political purpose or whatever. It's exposure of a lie or, or intended exposure of a lie, uh, undertaking to expose a lie. That's, a, that's an educative purpose. And I mean justification in that sense of serving the objective of copyright, not, not, not that, it, that it seem like a just and fair thing to do. So my second question um, uh, is a question about uh, the relationship between that purpose or justification factor and the amount factor. So you talked about the relationship between the, the first and second factors, and I think that's very helpful. Uh, one of the developments in fair use law that I think has been really a uh, very positive one is thinking about whether the amount that was taken was reasonable in light of the purpose. Uh, and that seems to connect the kind of justification with the amount taken. Uh, and so I hope if you publish this that you might actually reinforce the reasonable in light of the purpose uh, as another uh, consideration that uh, should be um, uh, weighed in the, the fair use analysis. I, I think I very, very much agree with that. I, you know, I think that that, that the reasonableness of the amount taken in light of the purpose um, uh, bears on, on, on how likely the, the copying work um, uh, can serve as a, as a substitute. Um, and um, uh, when it goes far, if the objective of the copying is to show that a factual statement was untrue, but then it copies an awful lot more that is in no way relevant to that analysis, the more it copies, the more it proffers itself as a substitute, uh, and the less that can be justified uh, for the demonstration of the falsity of the premise. So I, I agree completely with what you suggested. And my last comment? <laughs> I sure would like to see a Second Circuit uh, opinion that basically says that fair use is a defense, not an affirmative defense. <laughs> but that's just a hope for the future. <laughs> So Judge Laval, I wanted to ask about the Carew against Prince case from the Second Circuit. 
I know you were not on the panel, and that case has, has since settled. This is the case where uh, Carew's photographs of Rastafarians was uh, taken by Richard Prince, a so-called appropriation artist, and he added things like guitars to the images and then sold those as, as works of art and uh, for, for quite a lot of money. And in thinking about the idea of justification, which is a great way to, I think, frame the question of you know, what are the purposes of copyright law? How does fair use play into that? It's useful to think about analogies. How do we actually apply those standards to cases? The fair use decision from the Second Circuit in Cairo is one that's gotten a lot of attention uh, by, by fair use scholars and by copyright practitioners as really pushing the boundaries of fair use so far in part based on the idea of, of transformation. And yet Richard Prince, as a, someone who calls himself an appropriation artist, that almost tells you a lot about, uh, uh, about the justifications. And I wonder if you have any thoughts or comments on how your approach to the justifiable purposes of copyright law might apply in a situation like the Caro against Prince case. Uh, the these cases are, are, are so much a matter of, uh, of comparison of, um, uh, of, uh, of the original and the, and the, and the copying work. Um, as, I, as I was suggesting in talking about the likelihood of being able to answer to solve uh, most of these cases uh, in, in, on a 12B6 motion, and I, I, I really just haven't done the, the looking at the at, at the um, originals and the copies in the carry you case to be able to give, give an answer to your right. question. I Thanks. Haven't, I haven't done the homework. Um, I'm going to follow up on a uh, question before about de minimis and uh, uh, fair use. Um, and we, we've had more commentary on it in terms of uh, sampling. And, and uh, so is there a separate rule separate from fair use that deals with de minimis and says de minimis, de minimis is okay simply because it's de minimis. Could you articulate uh, something more definitive about? Uh, yeah, I think it's a separate rule. I think it's a separate rule. I think the fair use is not really about de minimis. There is a rule of de minimis. There, there, are, there are lots of copyright cases I don't know how many, but there certainly are copyright cases where the judgment has been rendered on the basis that it was de minimis. And it's a, it's a universal doctrine in the law, de minimis non curat lex. Uh, and um, you don't need to refer to, to fair use to, uh, to um, uh, reach a decision based on, on de minimis, uh, decision in favor of the defendant. Uh, I mean, it's one of the awkward things about, uh, about copying, um, about copyright, is that um, uh, I suppose that, um, that um, when at a party somebody gets up and sings happy birthday, but maybe that's not under copyright anymore, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's arguably a, a, a copyright violation. Um, and, and, and everybody does things just about everybody does things frequently that are arguably copyright violations. Um, and it's, I think it's uh, awkward to, um, to, think of, to think of it in terms of the law being violated right and left. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's helpful. I think it's a, a helpful and important notion not to distort copyright law 
that, uh, that, that de minimis be recognized as an independent basis for rejecting a copyright claim without having to go in and, and reach decisions that might be very difficult to square with the standards that should govern a fair use decision and might cause distortion of, of the fair use precedents for future cases Thank you. That, that were not de minimis. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for your comments, which I think are very, very important and, and very right on the uh, importance of taking good faith out of the equation. But it seems to me that... I, let me just interrupt to say, there was one thing I forgot to say in response to Pam Samuelson, was that she, she, she uh, expressed, I think, some agreement with my proposal uh, to give minimal importance to, um, to uh, bad faith. But that was not my proposal. My proposal was to give it zero importance. <laughs> because, and that's an important difference, because minimal, you know, we had a statement in one Second Circuit case that, um, that um, uh, bad faith uh, is part of the analysis, but it hardly ever matters. Um, well, as long as it's in there, it has the capacity to cause incalculable harm. Uh, and and, and uh, I think it's a requirement for fair use to be put on a proper level, on a proper understanding, that it be wiped out completely, that it simply not have any relevance, because uh, unless it goes that far, uh, it, uh, all those problems uh, can occur. Sorry. No, that's right. Well, thank you for your comments, and I, I think they are important. I think, though, the, the point you've made about good faith gives every reason to obliterate the distinction between parody and satire. Uh, the comments you made distinguishing them made satire sound a little bit like trademark dilution. It was using somebody else's material to call attention to your own independent product, and you referred to free writing, which, well, free writing is lawful and okay as long as one is not violating uh, a right, but free writing sounds pejorative, and it sort of sounded like bad faith. And why would it be different, for example, if I'm using a news clip uh, in a campaign to uh, a news clip of an interview of my opponent to uh, make a satirical point about my opponent. I'm not using the news clip to criticize the news clip or to comment on the news clip. I'm using it for a different purpose uh, to, to send up my opponent. And it, it seems to me that Wait, this distinction... To, uh, to send up your opponent? To, how does to, to insult my opponent or to criticize my opponent. How does, how does it do that? Because I'm taking, I'm taking some news clips of embarrassing statements that the opponent made, which oh, are yeah. copyrighted news clips by the, by the broadcaster. I, I'm using them fairly for a collateral purpose. Oh, oh, oh I see. You mean you're talking about the, you're talking about the copyright of the... Of the, of the television. Of oh, the news clip, that's right. Uh, I'm using it not to, not to critique the news clip, I'm using it to critique something else. And in society, it's very common to use tropes or iconic uh, figures or passages or phrases to make broad comments about society. I don't see why that is any less deserving of fair use protection than uh, parody 
neither one is particularly affecting the incentives, the ultimate purpose you're referring to, for the original uh, author. And, and it seems to me that we've gotten uh, tied up in, in a distinction here that's an artificial distinction for purposes of copyright law. And, and your point about good faith, uh, to me, stri strikes me as though there's nothing wrong uh, with satire other than maybe the suggestion that somebody should be paying for that collateral use uh, without any effect on the incentive to the author. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, the, um, I, I don't think I agree with you. I, I do agree with you that um, that is, is, it's very helpful. It can produce very good stuff to be able to use uh, somebody else's material to communicate one's own message. And w once again, I, I don't really think, although, although I, I plead guilty to having used um, words as rhetorical devices to, in, to, to make my point seem more appealing, to use words that seem to refer to moral principles, like free writing sounds bad. Uh, um, but um, uh, I'm thinking of the, of, the, of the interest of the author. Um, 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 the fact that, um, uh, the fact that an, an author creates a, a, a useful work, a work that, is, that it has great utility to society for all sorts of purposes, it seems to me uh, does not serve as an argument uh, that the public uh, ought to be allowed free access to the use of that work. Um, uh, it seems to me that that is exactly what uh, the copyright seeks to reward uh, when a uh, uh, when an author creates a, a work that uh, that, that um, 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 the rest of the world regards as important to have and to use and to, and so forth and to copy. Um, um, uh, um, that's what the author is entitled under the copyright to be paid for. Um, so I I mean I see a lot of merit to what you're arguing, but it does seem to me that there is uh, an important distinction, that the distinction made by Justice Souter uh, in Campbell is, is an important one, uh, that, um, that um, just because uh, it, increases your, it increases the effectiveness of your communication to communicate it through somebody else's copyrighted work is not a sufficient reason, uh, not a sufficient justification uh, for you to take it for free, uh, but it's a, uh, I, I, I can see that it's a debatable point, and uh, and the kind of examples that you um, that you use um, um, uh, have have some force. Uh, it reminds me of um, uh, uh, I was in Los Angeles a few years ago. Uh, I was invited to the beautiful. Um, what's the name of that gorgeous um, uh, hotel where the movie stars go? Um, um, the the uh, Bel what was that? Beverly Hills Beverly Hills Hotel uh, to give a talk to um, 
to um, <clears throat> the Los Angeles bar on fair use. Now, uh, that's, you gotta be a fool to go from New York to give a talk to fair use to the California bar. They don't like it out there. Uh, but anyway, I was there to give that talk, and my talk was at 8.30, and, uh, and I realized that I had left my glasses in my car, and I needed my glasses to be able to see my papers, and so I, at the bell, you can't just go to your car, you have gotta have a valet bring it. And I was standing in front of the hotel uh, waiting for the valet to bring my car when I see somebody walking up the path. And the person walking up the path is a filmmaker, Doug Lyman, who is the brother of my former law clerk. And I knew him slightly. And he's walking up the path, and he's glued to his phone walking up towards the hotel. And, uh, and uh, as he gets near me, he looks up, and, I, and, and, and he recognizes me. And I say hello to him, and he says, do you know anything about fair use? <laughs> and I said, well, I hope so, because I have to give a talk about it in 20 minutes. And he says, um, and he says um, well, I've got this problem. I've made this film. I'm making this film about the Valerie Plame incident. And I really want, I need to use the news clips from the news clips that were reporting all this stuff about the, the, the nuclear material in Africa somewhere and all that. And, they, and I, I, can't, I, can't get a, I can't get a license from the, from the, the television stations. Um, and um, um, well, I, I said, uh, I said, well, it sounds to me like the, the thing that you, I, I don't know, I, I, in any event, I introduced him to, to another former law clerk of mine in Los Angeles who was able to help him and get him insurance. And, 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 and when I saw the film, I saw that there was a credit to me. But anyway. <laughs> anyway. Thank you, Judge. The, I wanted to come back to the, your discussion of factor one and walk through the factors, and in particular, focus on the discussion in cases of transformative purposes. And, and distinguishing, the case is distinguished between two types of transformativeness, one in which um, the, the, the defendant may, does some, takes the original work, takes a portion of the original work, and does something to it and creates a new work that is different than the original, transforms it in some way. It doesn't have any, any doesn't make any kind of a commentary or illuminate the first. You're saying or, or, no, no, I'm, I'm saying that there are some in, in which there is a transformation of some kind oh. to the original work, whether it's modifying its physical appearance or the commentary or putting it in a different context or what have you. And then you have another series of cases where that doesn't happen, where there's a full-scale reproduction of the original work without modification. Um, think, you know, the Google Books case, for instance, where they're scanning the entire work, and the whole point is to have it appear and make the exact use of the identical, uh, uh, of an identical copy of the original. And so there's no transformation of the work itself and you have a series of cases around the country that then talk about whether or not the purpose of the copying was transformative. And so you have transformative distinction between transformative use of the work and transformative purpose in using the identical work or an identical copy of the work. And when I read those cases, you then get to factor four, um, and they talk about, well, because you're using it for a transformative purpose, you're using it for a purpose different than the plaintiff intended to use it, there's no effect on the market. And so the transformative, the, the fact that you're using it for a different purpose than the plaintiff gets counted under factor one and under factor four. And, and my question is, is that a double count? 
and should that matter? Should we, should we be concerned about counting, if, if, if the, uh, measuring the fairness if all that's uh, happening is that it's for a different purpose, but there's no transformation of the work itself? Well, I don't think that, um, that the fact that it's for a different purpose uh, means that there's no effect on the market. I think that, um, that the point uh, about transformative is that, that um, um, uh, using the original for a different purposes reduces the likelihood that it's going to uh, have an effect on the market because the different purpose uh, means that it's likely to be of interest to a different audience that has a, so, so it's merely a matter of likelihood. But um, uh, 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 our opinion made what I thought was a, a, an important point in Google Books that the result would have been different uh, if um, Google had done this in a manner that left the digital copies exposed on the internet in a manner where very easily anybody could grab them off and use them as a substitute. So if you view uh, Google, the, 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 the purpose of the copying in Google Books as being a purpose to enable the public to, to, um, to identify books that respond to their interests. If I want a book on Einstein, I just write Einstein into the search box and it will identify for me all the books that use the word Einstein. And that is a transformative purpose. But, 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 but that doesn't answer the fourth factor um, uh, because uh, if Google had, had simply posted, you know, left the books up there on the internet after using them for that purpose, uh, where anybody could pick them off and no longer buy the books or to, to read it, there would be uh, inevitably tremendous fourth factor harm, uh, virtually the destruction of the market of the book. So the fourth factor is independent. There's, there's a strong interrelationship between them uh, because a, a transformative use uh, is less likely to result in substitution. But there, I mean, the other kinds of factors are, um, I mean, supposing that an art historian um, writes a treatise on Matisse, and the treatise on Matisse includes, uh, includes some copies of, of works in order to, to illustrate certain kinds of, of, of points um, uh, in order to show how Matisse uses color or how he, the, the, the importance of textiles in Matisse's work. Um, um, uh, the fact that, um, the, 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 the fact that, well, I'm sorry, I, I have a, I chose a bad example. I was going to say that, 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 that the price of the, that, that change it from, from Matisse to, to Hemingway, supposing that, that there's quotation from Hemingway for various, various points, and the scholarly book that subsequently quotes is something that sells for $70, whereas you can buy the Hemingway book for $350. Um, the, the fact that the, the fact that the scholar, the, the copying book is very, very expensive, and the original whose market is, is concerned in factor four is quite inexpensive to buy, that's going to affect the fourth factor. So, uh, there's a relationship between them, but the one doesn't answer the other. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Please join me in thanking Judge Laval.